0: That's enough sangha. (laughs) How's it going? Okay. There's this uh, this story of the Buddha uh, being uh, sick, uh, and uh, during the night, and uh, usually the the kind of vulnerability of the Buddha is not emphasized in the in the suttas, in the recorded teachings. And so I always find it uh, kind of touching when the Buddha is actually depicted in these very human ways, sick and at night. And uh, one of his uh, uh, close monastic attendant monks is with him. And he asks, um, amidst this sickness, you know, for for the monk to uh, call to mind and speak of the seven factors of awakening. And the kind of sense that you get is that it was a little bit like, uh, um, hopefully this doesn't sound too infantilizing, but the Buddha, kind of like wanting a bedtime story you know like except uh not good night moon but uh the seven factors so he actually says okunda the this this monk uh, let the factors of enlightenment occur to your mind and then speak them to me so elsewhere the buddha said um I do not see even one thing that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandoning of the things that fetter so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment. And so tonight I actually wanted to pick up on one one of those seven. Um, this is reflecting a little bit on Unrestlessness restlessness and anxiety, and uh, its uh, counterpart, namely uh, tranquility. Yeah. So. Tranquility. Mm. This is important because uh, It is so intense, just being human. Like, right? I mean, tell me it's not just me. You know, like, like, even when things are going really well, it's still intense being human. And, you know, we we kind of like walk around like it's not such a big deal to be human. You know, we're like kind of casual about the whole thing. I'm just, you know, living my life and I wear button-down shirts and I bathe and no big deal, just living my life but it's a big deal being human and it is the world is like always touching us this is one way of actually understanding uh, what what is meant by by the first noble truth that the world is like always impinging on us even the eyes closed but no there's still sensation and sound and there's the thought and feeling and we're always being like impacted by the world and there's a way in which, uh, you know, it it leaves us kind of like looking for some way to turn down the dial, like on the the nervous system really. And so, it can feel, uh, you know, it can feel like, like a sort of blizzard, really, you know. And now, in our, in our distraction, we don't really, we don't really see it. We're just actually propelled by the intensity of it. We don't actually know how intense it is to be alive until we pause deeply. But then we sit down and um, as we do in this practice and what we see is that something in us deeply longs for peace. You know, that maybe this is the highest good in a sense. And sometimes it feels like um, you know, it's almost like um, like our nervous system just like longing for the Dharma. You know? like, like how can I be at peace in this incarnation? And remarkably, even just a moment of it, just like a moment of peace can pierce an hour a day sometimes a lifetime of agitation and restlessness. It can feel so much like coming home. But usually, uh, to, you know, manage the intensity of being human, we pile more intensity on top of intensity. It's like we chase intensity with more. We have a long stressful day and we like try to actually neutralize that intensity by adding more stimulation, more something, you know? And, uh, you know, that kind of works. Like it's not, you know, it kind of works. That's the that's thing about a lot of our not-so-helpful habits, is they kind of work, which makes them so much harder to let go, you know. They kind of work. But when we actually do that, and I don't exempt myself from this, you know, I have to, every time I'm a little like internally stimulated by some boredom, I have to actively resist picking up my stupid smartphone. You know, it's like, yeah. So we, our tendency is to, um, is is to really just kind of like pile intensity upon intensity and it kind of works and it kind of leaves us feeling fragmented and feeling like we're a little bit like on the run all the time. And so, um, part of our path is is developing uh, tranquility, abiding in this, being nourished by it. And this is important because um, Agitation and restlessness are very pervasive. And it's said that, that restlessness doesn't actually fade in the mind until we're like really, really, you know, quite deeply awakened. And I think when we look, we can actually see that um, so often we're subtly kind of waiting for something, you know, like the mind is sort of perched at the ledge of the present moment, but it's like, kind of, you know, leaning forward, like waiting for something to redeem the moment. And we can actually sense this in meditation that uh, we're, you know, following the breath or attending to the body. And there's a certain way in which we're like waiting for the insight, or waiting for concentration to develop, or waiting for tranquility to arise, right? There's like this This just, sometimes it's not a very obvious, sometimes it's very obvious, but sometimes it's a much more subtle energy of waiting. And in a certain sense, we can think of meditation practice as waiting for nothing. You know? We're we're no longer waiting for something. We're just we're waiting for nothing. And can be even be helpful to reflect on what it would be like not to have a future. In the sense not not in the sense of reflecting on mortality or something like this, but just the sense of like uh, how simple things would be if this were the only moment we were to live, yeah. if we weren't trying to somehow intervene, and manipulate what's here for some other purpose, but instead, we were just waiting for nothing. <clears throat> so it's said that, uh, that the path is, um, you you will often hear on the path, right? Um, you're asked to open to experience, right? I asked you that like a bunch during the meditation, you know, open, open to your experience, allow life in, allow experience to come touch you in a way. And that is like a kind of core aspect of the practice and of the learning on this path and yet, to try to open to experience when the mind is in a kind of like crispy place, right? When life is feeling actually too intense, when there's a lot of restlessness, that's actually, uh, that's a lot to ask, to open, yeah. And that gesture of opening from a kind of brittleness in the mind is, um, is, is, uh, that's problematic. And you know, that's, that's, that's when meditation can feel like, oh, it's too much. It's too much that I'm being asked to open to. And then we can wind up actually like swimming in our internal material, marinating in it, rather than being mindful of it. And so, um, I would say that, uh, yeah, hyper, when we're hyper arousal, when when the kind of nervous system is like idling, at, you know how you, a car idles at like 500 RPMs? But then maybe if you're in, if you haven't started a car for a long time or you're in a cold climate, it might idle much higher, you know? Our mind is like that a lot of ways and sometimes we're idling a little lower and then sometimes we really actually are idling much higher. And that sense of being hyper aroused, that sense of being like a little, a little internally overwhelmed actually, um, yeah, it changes how life feels in a deep way. It changes what how we think about ourselves and the future. And so, uh, and it changes how we can actually receive this moment when we're in a kind of hyper aroused state. And so, um, Suzuki Roshi said, uh, said, um, I think defined mindfulness at one point as, as a soft readiness, soft readiness. And you can see how that almost uh, presupposes a certain level of tranquility that that actually to receive life, to receive experience, uh, we need to be a little settled. We don't have to be totally calm, but a little settled. There's a story of, uh, yeah, from, from Jack, I think he was in, he was in a, a discuss, practice, practice discussion, an interview with somebody on, on retreat. And, uh, she came in and she was like, you know, I'm in this funny, something's going on. It's weird. I don't really know what's happening. you know, and I think Jack sort of inquired and they're like, trying to figure it out, what's going on and what the problem is, how to solve it or whatever. And then at some point, there was like this realization in her like, oh, you know what? I think I might know what it is. I'm calm. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't always actually fully register, Um, but, when we really taste tranquility it, it, you know, the Buddha likened it to like, uh, you know, cool, cool rain. This is uh, Thomas Merton, uh, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to the violence of our times. And so, you know, here, here we, um, we let the silence work on us. And there's a certain way that the Um, You know, I was joking about, uh, you know, sort of like enough sangha, right? As we're talking with each other, right? But sangha is actually the container. What we do together is so important, actually, for, for tranquility, right? We all know the experience, the difference between meditating alone versus with people. And... Tranquility is kind of contagious, you know? And um, we actually can lean on each other, you know, especially when we're in, when we're in this group, when we're in this container, when, we, when we're on retreat up the hill, if we do that, to actually lean on the stability and peace of others. I often k- kind of uh, remember when i was doing uh doing psychotherapy and uh maybe somebody would come into the to the clinical room and be quite uh you know agitated anxious and uh and and that's kind of contagious too right but um if I could stay grounded and not be propelled into this mode where I actually had this sense of like, oh, I need to actually solve everything here. I need to resolve this. I could actually just sort of welcome that individual into my mind, like allow them to actually, uh, essentially like, like be mindful for them in a way, like just to offer my own st- the stability and tranquility. And if I didn't get, uh, if I could be aware myself and not get caught up in the, the kind of uh, intensity of the moment, then they too would actually, they could kind of like ride on my tranquility. And I think this happens often in, in sangha, you know, we can actually lean on each other, you know? And so maybe we, Thich Nhat Hanh says, if you're feeling agitated and uh, angry and you know, like it just feels like more than you can handle, sit with a friend, like just like meditate next to one another. And just lean on the stability of the other. Now, uh, it's said that um, that in these seven factors of of uh, mindfulness and investigation, energy, um, tr- yeah, uh, rapture like uh, intense joy, tranquility. Samadhi, concentration, equanimity, it's said that these sort of lead to one another. Uh, they, they unfold from one another, although it's often not, not very linear. Um, but, but you notice that jo- rapture or joy is what actually precedes tranquility. And normally we think of like, okay, I'm gonna get calm or I'm gonna get concentrated, concentrated and then I'll be happy, right? But what this is actually pointing to is the reverse, that we actually find some joy in this moment and this actually, the mind and its tendency to go kind of like foraging for something starts to fade as there's as there's some joy some pleasure in the mind we actually stop leaning into the future so much we can actually just be satiated be content and this then can unfold into more and more uh, tranquility now as far as formal formal meditation like um there are I would say some some anchors of attention that actually seem to be more closely associated with with tranquility so the the- you know for some people, the breath is maybe actually linked to some anxiety, and I've heard Jack sort of estimate like maybe one in five people. The breath may not be the best object of focus, but um, that you may find that. But for a lot of people really attending to the exhalation and the kind of ripple, sometimes very obvious, but sometimes kind of subtle, the ripple of relaxation across the body with the exhale. And usually we, in meditation, we don't talk so much about manipulating the breath. We just say breathe normally, but there are some teachers who actually encourage you to experiment with breathing in certain ways that actually induces some tranquility. And so we can actually experiment with how we attend with sort of following the breath. And it, it, it can almost feel like the whole body is breathing. Uh, Sometimes uh, the internal it, it can get intense in a way in the internal system here, and can be very good to to sort of anchor the attention in the visual field. Now, in general, when when we're looking, uh, we're not con- we're not mindful of looking. Like of all of the senses in a certain way, mindfulness of seeing can, it, it's only a stone throw away, but it can feel very new. You know, There's a difference between seeing and knowing we're seeing. Right? And the visual field can be like actually knowing that we're seeing, not just seeing, but knowing that we're seeing. Namely, mindfulness of sight can be very helpful when the internal world feels like, uh, it feels like we're swimming, marinating in something. And so we can actually scan the visual field and you can just, you may find that there's something to look at that feels vaguely soothing or maybe pleasant. And you can actually just rest the attention there. Now this is not like the, uh, this is not the pleasant of like double chocolate chip ice cream, but we gotta take what we can, you know in meditation. So it's like it may be kind of subtle, but you may just sense like, oh yeah, that the red of the carpet is somehow more soothing than the the tan, yeah. You know? And you just kind of rest and anchored in the visual field. Sometimes I'll I'll actually listen to for like the most distant sounds and really attend to the fading away of sound. Naturally, the attention will go to what's most intense and loudest and be more attentive to the arising of sounds than the fading away. But we can actually also attend to like, what can we just barely hear and can we listen to it fading out. And we just follow that fade into some peace, some tranquility. It's helpful uh, often to have, uh, to, to be doing some mental, to, mental noting, which many of you are likely familiar with. And generally this is just silently whispering a word to keep track of experience in our own mind. So when we're doing, you know, we might make the note breathing in, breathing out. And in general, we're we're, we're noting very simple kind of experiences and it's best done in a very gentle matter of fact tone of voice. You may be like freaking out, right? The mind may be like, whatever right but but the like just the continuity of that like gentle mental noting just just stay with it yeah and in general as i was saying like we we just note very discrete sensory experiences but sometimes it can be good to have to note like a whole mind state, the whole gestalt of what's going on. And I can let you in on one particular mental note that is uh, very often forgotten, but can be quite helpful. Uh, And that note is, I'm having a meltdown. We don't know that we're having meltdown when we're having a meltdown. That is, we, we know things are like intense and unpleasant, but it hasn't actually fully registered as a meltdown. Right? Does that make sense? It hasn't actually registered, like we're so absorbed in the content of the story and the way that we're understanding everything that we haven't recognized like, Oh, this is a meltdown. And there's something actually about who's been on retreat either here or silent retreat, residential retreat. Yeah. You know this, right? Like the meltdown kind of sneaks up on you and, All of a sudden, like everything feels like wrong, and it's just like, what, you know, how do I get, how do you, what, what, like, what, like, the universe is off its rails somehow. And then because we're actually staying with practice and we just keep going, keep showing up, we actually see the whole, like, house of cards that, like, was the foundation for that meltdown, like that collapses. And it's not like we think, oh, everything was totally fine. But that sense of like the grip of like the frenzied, agitated meltdown experience, that actually changes. And we get to see how our own minds were participating in that. And it can actually Knowing, like truly knowing with mindfulness that we are having a meltdown when we're having it is very helpful because it introduces a certain kind of space, right? And the meltdown is real, but there's something else that is also true. Namely, there is this awareness of it. And just that very subtle gesture uh, is um a cause of of more tranquility, yeah. so as we practice, we can look uh, we can look into like this urge to make something happen to make. concentration happen to make insight happen to get somewhere to to get enlightenment right um you know when we when we're wanting a donut in during meditation for example or a cookie let's use cookie wanting a cookie we kind of know like that's if we've been around, hanging around the meditation scene for a while, we know kind of like, all right, let go of the cookie. you right. But when we're wanting concentration, it doesn't fully register as another, just another species of greed. You know, it feels like, Oh, this is, this is dignified, you know, the cookie I can let, I, I gotta let go of that, but the craving f- for my mind to be concentrated right now, that's fine, right? But no, it's the same, the same texture of craving, cookie concentration. The craving that is, is made of the same stuff. And so we let go. Let go, Ajahn Sumedo. Uh, um, w- you know, uh, would and this is this is through my my time with uh, with Ajahn Amaro. Um, um, you know, uh, uh, Sameedo would talk often about um, he, uh, he would talk about being enlightened rather than becoming enlightened, you know? And um, yeah, so he says, it's not about doing something now to become enlightened in the future. This is totally wrong. This kind of thinking is bound up with self and time. Be awake now, be enlightened to the present moment. Now, uh, we can watch, we can watch the ways, the kind of cycles of becoming, our attempts to manufacture something, you know, our attempts to manufacture the next moment, you know, to bring something into being, and we relax. We, We just relax. It's so tempting to make meditation a kind of another dimension of our grand self-improvement project, you know? Like we turn ourselves into a kind of self-improvement project. And uh, there's some allure to that, you know? But, uh, but we actually really want to, want to let ourselves be, like, like, what would it mean to like really just leave yourself alone? You know? Just like, don't make anything of yourself. Don't try to become anything. Just, 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 let's just leave ourselves alone. You know? Um, now, This this tranquility um, is is also uh, yeah very closely related to to these teachings on selflessness. You know, as we get more quiet, more settled, the self becomes more and more vague. In our agitation, it's like we're constantly reminding ourselves who we are, where we are, what we're to become, what's here, what's the future, what's the past. It's like we have all these reference points and we're continually like locating ourselves with these reference points. And as we get more and more settled, more and more calm, more and more tranquil, it's like the, the self starts to become more, more vague. You know, like the, the boundaries between me and you starts to become more vague. the sense of like that there's some thing, someone, some center point inside me, like that becomes more vague too. Neuroscientist Bruce Hood writes, each morning we wake up and experience a rich explosion of consciousness the bright morning sunlight, the smell of coffee. As the slumber recedes into the night, we awake to become who we are. The morning haze of dreams and oblivion disperses and lifts as recognition and recall bubble up the content of our memories into consciousness. For the briefest of moments, we are not sure who we are. And then suddenly I, the one that is awake, awakens. We gather our thoughts so that the I who is conscious becomes the me, the person with a past. The memories of the previous day return, plans for the future reformulate. We glance at the mirror, we take a moment to reflect. This is who we are. Now as we as we settle, as we get more quiet, that sense, you know, that brief moment that that Hood is alluding to, when we don't, you know, maybe it's when we just wake up. We don't quite know who we are. It's like we have to remind ourselves that the I is the me, the I, that that this consciousness belongs to that person with the past. But the tranquility actually um, helps us become more and more vague. It maybe expands. The time when we forget the self or the self gets less at least less solid. We're not all invested in being this or being that, in proving this about ourself. It's just very quiet. Now um you know, Aristotle uh, asked the question, like, what, what is the highest good, the good to which all other goods are aimed? And um, he had his answer, and the Buddha had his own. The Buddha really said, the highest happiness is peace. And that's not to dismiss um, lots of other beautiful kind of mind states, but peace, and tranquility leading to peace. This is, has a kind of revered place in uh, in Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist path. I was here in this hall, this is now, I don't know, it might be close to 10, 10 years ago. And, um, yeah, it was a day long on, on love and, uh, it was great. It was taught by a couple, yeah, a couple dear, dear people, friends, and, um, and it was everything all about love. Everything was about love. And at the, towards the end of the day, we did this thing where it was like a, like called like a tunnel tunnel of kindness. And so this is what it was. It was like maybe a hundred or 150 people here. We're not going to do this by the way, but we all (laughs) lined up. We lined up right here, like maybe six feet away from one another. And so it was like 75 people here, 75 people here looking at one another. And then in this tunnel, each person got blindfolded one by one, peeled off the end of the tunnel, and walked down the tunnel. And each person along the sides of the tunnel, one by one, would whisper something quietly into their ear, right? And, uh, You know, (laughs) I remember this one woman walking down who she was sitting right in front of me during the day and I could just like kind of sense that she was like really connecting with the practice. And I remember I whispered into her ear like, I think you're falling in love with the Dharma. (laughs) And she just like squeals with delight. right? And then eventually it's my turn to walk down and I walk down. And some people like said just like pretty generic things like may you be happy or like, you know. Um, But some people like were like weirdly perceptive in knowing my joy and my neurosis and they like made very precise recommendations to (laughs) me, and that were like a lot of them were like really like resonate like "Yeah, yeah yeah so this is going on for like an hour right and it is like a frenzy of love in the room it was beautiful it was like you couldn't really imagine a kind of more deeply pervaded by like the intensity of love and care. And as beautiful as it was and as cherished and as valued as that love has in the practice and in my own mind and heart, there's something that longed just for peace. And what we can sometimes see is that um, that uh, that that peace is the only thing that doesn't fatigue the heart yeah. that anything else actually can if it goes on for too long or at a sufficient intensity, it can fatigue the heart even the most beautiful things, such as love. But, um, but peace, that, that is, um, it's like the nervous system is, is, uh, is finally at rest. And, when there's peace, we don't actually have to look for joy or love or anything, actually. The moment is utterly complete. So we have uh, time for a, uh, Few, few questions, if there, there are any. We'll uh, pass a pass a mic around. Uh. need to ask just because nobody else is by the way like i i have a very i guess i'm breaking it but i have a high threshold for awkward silence so uh, <laughs> so like a occupational hazard you guys stonewall me
1: so i'm gonna stonewall you oh we got a
0: question okay hey hey
1: So, um, thank you, Matthew. This is um, a talk that I really needed to hear. Mm. Um, In meditation this evening, I uh, was really aware of anticipation. Mm. And then I was like, oh, let me look at this a little bit. What's it feel like? And it's really up here. The anticipation is really in my head. Yeah. And... um, sat with it a little bit more and was like, oh, it's actually just anxiousness. It's just anxiousness. It's restlessness. Hmm. And then the reflection of, okay, so let's see what this is about. And looking a little bit deeper and just, you know, this is kind of, that's how I run. <laughs> yeah. it's, how I, it's how I operate in the yeah. world. And then when you mentioned... Um, the the break, like the breakdown, like I'm having a a meltdown, I smiled because I realized actually, I didn't realize it at the time. So here we go. He's like, okay, so... I realized, oh, I had a meltdown today. Yeah, Like yeah. technology failed and yeah. I hadn't had anything to eat. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I just, my husband who works in the office outside of our house, I, yeah. like, when I was like, I need your help right now. And it yeah. was just like I had a full meltdown. Yeah, And he just looked at me and he said, you need to sit down and take a breath and eat. And even though I knew, yeah. I knew yeah. that's exactly what I needed to do. Right. I didn't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I didn't yeah. do that, and yeah. so my my question, or yeah. just even a practice tip, or something, like some jewel. Yeah. I have a lot of practice in this body of mine, and I've yeah. been doing this practice a long time. Yet I still, I still go and have that that meltdown. Yeah. <laughs> and I still know what to do, yet. I don't choose it, yeah, I don't choose, and then, and just to see and hear you talk about it, it's like, oh yeah, and I didn't choose it, yeah, like because the there is that I don't know what gets in the way of choosing it,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: and so I'm curious if you could speak to that just a little bit
0: yeah well i i I think what it is it, um, uh. We, you, you probably sensed like may, maybe not, not totally consciously, but you probably sensed if you did sit down in that moment, you would be walloped by a kind of wave of unpleasantness, actually. And so it's like there, the, and the mind, and this is the, the mind like gets a subtle hit of that, and it's like, no. You know, and I sort of like I. The image I have is like cartoon characters of, of like, cartoon characters like running, running really fast. But they're like, there's like an anvil attached to them, and there's uh, like a uh, a rubber band, like a you know, like a rubber band attached to their waist and an anvil. I don't know where I get this stuff, but like. This is the image I have when I'm like on the run kind of and I know if I stop the elastic band like <laughs> right and we are anticipating that impact and that and and sometimes we get intimidated by by it and the truth is it probably will be intense for a moment but sometimes it actually we like, if we can just be with it for just a moment, it actually starts to to unfold. And there's like something in the heart that, um, uh, that really relaxes when we like come back into balance. Even though there is the, the impact, there is the aversive aspect of the experience. There's something like, okay, this hurts but it really hurt being on the run, you know? And, um, there's definitely a place for, for movement. There's a place for like lying down. There's a place for, you know, like actual physical gestures of some, some soothing, like hand hand to face or heart or, um, yeah, doing, doing some, some mindful movement or something. And, um, you know sometimes we're just not you know there this practice is humbling you know and part of why it's humbling is because there are moments when we know we need to let go and we can't you know and uh, and sometimes in those moments, like how we actually, how the mind picks up and relates to those moments is important, you know? Because for some people, that, that's the mo- that's a moment of, of shame or it's like, or we try to like, um, we actually get even more harsh with ourselves to like try to rally in a way um, because the feeling of being Uh, Helpless in the face of our own dukkha, own suffering. The helplessness is about the most aversive experience we can have. And every once in a while, I try in those moments, and those moments can come up, it doesn't have to be like grand big moments. That can happen just when we want another you know dessert or something like and we don't we don't want to take it and we do and then we do and, and you know like this sense like oh, I need to let go but I can't like it can be very small examples I don't want to say this to my partner but we do like those moments sometimes sometimes we can actually take that moment of helplessness into the heart and actually let it become the seed for, motiv- for, for for motivation, motivation for to practice more. I'm gonna suffer now. There's nothing I can do actually right now, but I'm gonna actually use this moment to consolidate my wish to wake up. Yeah. I'm, I can't, it's like we're backed into like this karmic corner and uh, we can't find our way out right now. But I want to use this moment, you know. I'm going to let, and it, it hurts. But it's like I'm going to let this burn into my heart a little, yeah. And uh, that does become a powerful. That's a way of a way of using the sense of helplessness as a way of spurring more uh, practice. Yeah. So.
1: Thank you.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's just uh just sit for a moment. <laughs> Whatever goodness you can sense in this room, in the sangha, in this lineage of dharma, may that goodness resonate with the goodness inside you. May our efforts here together tonight, may this be a cause small or dramatic for less suffering, more joy, more peace in ourselves and those we encounter Thank you. Um, Before we go, um, any... uh, What should I talk about next week? (laughs) I can't promise that I will... I can take the request, but... Um, I like the um, restlessness, but I think that maybe some pain. I know we talked about...
1: Pain. I have... For me, it was really hard. This is my first time meditating. It's my first time here, and um, I have chronic pain. I have, I have bad back, and it was really hard to learn how to do this with that constantly being there. Yeah. For a place to
0: find, push that out of that space. Thank you. That would be helpful. Yeah. Are there other thoughts. Uh, yeah. Would you take it a to do all of over the course of year or however long it takes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Love. Yeah. What's that? The tunnel. We, you want to do the tunnel? Yeah. I'm not authorized. I, my empowerment is not, I don't have the tunnel empowerment. Okay, I'll do something. Next week. Anyway, I wish you a good week. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.